Hello and welcome to Watch It Baptist Church Online. My name's Mike, I'm the pastor here at WBC and you're joining us for the last in our five-part series looking at the prophecy, the book of Ezekiel from the Old Testament. We're going to be spending some time looking at text today. There's actually three readings and they're uh, all three of them are of a reasonable length. Um, but my hope is that we can do justice to these passages. We're looking at the back end of the book and that we might still find ourselves uh, inspired, possibly even excited by what God is revealing to us in Scripture. Before we go any further, let's pray. Father God, we place ourselves again in your hands. We thank you that we have found so much in this book that clearly speaks of your character, of your purposes, and helps us to understand who you are and what's important to you. Would you breathe by your spirit into us as we look at these last passages? And would you help them come alive in our minds as we do? Amen. Okay then, we're starting with two uh, little excerpts from chapters 36 and 37. And they say this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy, when my sanctuary is among them forever. There's a change of tone here, isn't there, from some of the things that we've read previously from Ezekiel. There's a lot more to feel optimistic about in these verses. They're borrowed from uh, chapters 36 and 37. I've not read all of either of those chapters. But they are an important reminder to us that God remembers. For all the struggle, for all the anguish and upset 
that God has described through Ezekiel. Everything that's come before, at this point, God is maintaining his tendency to say, I stick to my guns. If I've promised to do something, I will do it. And even if there has been heartbreak, even if there has been rebellion, even if there has been unfaithfulness, that doesn't mean I forget my promises. It doesn't mean I break my covenant. God remembers. What I find interesting along that, alongside that, though, when I was reflecting a little bit on some of the bits that we've looked at earlier in the series, is that God does hold communities responsible and nations too. He keeps his promises. He remains good. And it's really important to remember that we best understand what God is like by looking at Jesus. So if the Old Testament God seems different from the New Testament God, remember that Jesus is God and we best understand God's character by looking at what Jesus is like. So if we see a discrepancy between what we see in the Old Testament and the way Jesus behaves in the New, then we need to understand the Old Testament differently in order to recognise how God is constant, how he is the same, how he is consistent in his character. He does hold communities and nations accountable and responsible. Interesting that when we looked, uh, I think it was last time, at judgment, we saw that God was absolutely able and willing to recognise those who had grieved the bad behaviour of the nation and would treat them differently. And yet it's the nation that's held responsible. And I think we need to bear that in mind because the ways in which we behave as communities, not just as a community of those who have faith, but of communities geographically, of communities in our economic circumstances, of communities of, of relative affluence. Um, there are ways in which we behave and contribute to our culture, which are important to God and he will have something to say about that nation or that community. Before we go to the next bit, and we're going to look at chapter 37, I did want to just have a little digression and talk very briefly about multiple horizons. When we're looking at prophecy in the Old Testament, or prophecy in general, it's important for us to remember that it is fulfilled in different ways for different circumstances. Now this may feel a little uncomfortable. You might say, well, if God said something, surely it can only be understood one way, because God must have went, meant it to be working one way. And I see exactly where you're coming from, but we also see that uh, Old Testament prophecy gets understood by those who live in that time in one way, and interpreted by New Testament writers sometimes in a different way. And then very often there is a third perspective on that prophecy, which is to do with how God will fulfil creation ultimately. We talk about the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus, and these things bring creation to its fulfilment. And sometimes we see that one prophecy, one prophetic insight or expression can be understood in one way in a time it's written, another way in a time of the New Testament, and a third way uh, when we come to think of the day of the Lord. I only mention that because I recognise that prophecy is a tricky thing for us to get our head around, but also because there are ways in which this um, second and third passages that we're going to look at work in multiple ways. So they work in a way that belongs to their own time 
and they work in a way that belongs to the New Testament understanding too and even to the end of this age. So with that in mind we're going to have a look now at chapter 37 of Ezekiel and I'm going to read a good chunk of it. The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone by bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy to them and say, this is what the Lord, sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. And then take another stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Joseph, that is to Ephraim and all the Israelites associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. And when your people ask you, won't you tell us by what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and the uh, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him and join it to Judah's stick. I will make them into a single stick of wood and they will become one in my hand. There is wonderful stuff in this passage. Perhaps you will already have started thinking about ways in which some of the language used here kind of ties itself to things that are said elsewhere. I'm aware that in Genesis 2 verse 7, as the second of those two amazing creation narratives is unfolding, we get this. So this is Genesis 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So we have an echo of that in these verses. It's almost as if God is creating his people all over again. 
and maybe that's entirely appropriate in some ways because the relationship between God and his people has been so damaged. The cause of all the renewal that takes place in this passage, which I'm sure will be familiar to, to many, I, I certainly sang uh, a song about um, the bones, dry bones hearing the word of the Lord when I was in Sunday school as a kid. Um, so some of it would be familiar, but there's a, a real drive through this passage that is the spirit. I mean, we know from much later, from John 17 particularly, how Jesus wants his disciples to know that the spirit will be given to them and, and placed within them. We know that it's the spirit that, uh, Jeremiah, no, not Jeremiah, yes, that Jeremiah is referring to when he talks about how he will write um, the, the law on within his people. They will have the spirit in them and they will know, um, know him and know his way because his spirit is within them. The cause of all this renewal, the cause of all this restoration to life is the spirit. The Hebrew word here is ruach, uh, which is usually written down in English as R-U-A-C-H. And it's the word used for wind and for breath and for the spirit of God. It's the same word. It's used over and over again in different ways. So we get this um, fantastic bit where, uh, where God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath or possibly to the wind, or, or, some, or to the spirit, or something. Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. Did you know that Jesus, at the end of John's gospel, breathes the spirit into his disciples as he finishes his ministry after his resurrection? There is real precedent um, that, that this verse, these verses pick up on, that God sets in Genesis as he wishes to give life to his people. So he breathes on them. His breath goes into them. The spirit is all over the place then in chapter 37. There's nothing happening here that's any use without the spirit. So without the spirit being active, the restoring of the people is, is fairly empty. You'll see that, that they, they get stages here. So um, he prophesies and, and the Rattling sound happens and the bones come together. And then as he looks, tenders and flesh appears on them and skin covers them. And then we get this thing about the breath. So you have kind of um, empty figurines, I suppose. They've, they've been pulled back together, a marvellous miracle. But, but they don't get their f they don't to be fulfilled until the spirit is in them. So I prophesied. As he commanded me, says Ezekiel, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. God goes on to explain how it's really important for him to be able to bring life back to something that was dead. So these bones are the people of Israel and they say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. The sovereign law says I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. What's interesting about this valley of bones is that it's not just uh, understood to be a, a generic valley. This is a reference to an actual valley outside Jerusalem where it is understood that the Babylonians, having overrun the city, dumped hundreds, possibly thousands of bodies. And they really were. It was a valley full of dry bones by the time that the various um, processes, you know, the animals that eat carrion and so on, uh, have come and devoured those bodies until there's only bones left. So God says, 
You'll know I'm the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. And it's at this point that we revisit this idea about how in different ways prophecy works at different times. There's so much of our understanding of how Jesus um, is restored to life, his own resurrection, the power of that and the work of the Holy Spirit that makes it possible. But also the ways in which a new life is breathed into the church after at Pentecost, after Jesus uh, has returned to be with his father. Because at that point, a new life is breathed into them too. What a fabulous thing this is for the Holy Spirit to be part of what's happening here. Cause of renewal. Interestingly, as we, we think a lot about how the Holy Spirit's involved here, I'm going to borrow a little bit from Ezekiel 39. It's just on this bit of paper over here. And it says, um, then they will know that I am the Lord their God. For though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them uh, to their own land not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the Sovereign Lord. That's the thing that makes the difference, the pouring out of the spirit. That is where God is active and creative and from which he sustains things. His spirit is powerful. So we've looked at two passages. The second is really describing how the Spirit of God and his, his breath, his intention, uh, will revive his people. The first one, if you remember, was about God remembering his promises. And actually in those verses, we see references to a new land and a new king. Uh, it's referred to as a prince, but a, a new royal leader, uh, which is very much, I think when you read it, feels very much like Jesus. Uh, there's a new people in a way and a new covenant and and that land with those people in is restored and fruitful and settled by people again so you've got a restoration but i also want to talk about a renewal in this third passage and i'm going to read from chapter uh, 47 uh, for 12 verses so let's have a look at that the man brought me back to the entrance to the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastwards with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? And then he led me back to the bank of the river. And when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En Eglem. There will be places for spreading 
nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea, but the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will go on both banks. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit, for, uh, fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. What an incredible description of how things are different. And it is, it's a, it's a parable, it's a way of understanding something. But it's still so strong. There is a significance to those opening verses of chapter 47 when it says uh, the water came out from under the threshold toward the east and the water was coming down under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. And then um, Ezekiel has to go around through the north gates and gets led around the outside and water is trickling from the south side. And then they go eastwards. Now, the reason why that's significant is there's a little bit that we've not had the chance to look at. I think it's chapter sort of 43, 44, maybe where God returns to the temple and this direction of the flow of water uh, is like re water returning on the path from which God comes and returns to the temple. So there is there is a significance to the direction. There's also a miracle happening here. So the, the, the flow gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Over the course of a mile it goes from a trickle to something that's too deep and wide to cross. The significance of that is that this miracle is that the extra water doesn't come from runoff from the neighbouring fields um, or from tributaries. It just it just grows in itself in, in much the same way that we see in the Old Testament, the, the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, where they're able to 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 um, by God's power and authority, they're able to turn something small and make it bigger or make it last longer. So something very much like that is happening here. And that water represents the presence of God. So the presence of God is miraculously bigger than it should be. It isn't held in the temple, but flows out from the temple to the land. It provides refreshment and nurture and nourishing. By it, we get fruit fruit that will feed people and all of this takes the land that are, is around the temple and turns it into something incredibly fruitful. Water is living, it's the presence of God and it's a source of blessing. And there's so much that we can't, might want to pick up from that. But I think the things I'd want to dwell on are that in this explanation, God through Ezekiel is telling his people that he is not limited to temple, that his goodness and his nourishing goes out to the world from the temple. It's a reiteration of something that Ezekiel has been saying consistently through the whole of his, um, his writing, the whole of his prophecy. That God is not limited to a place. God is not limited to a particular pattern of worship or a um, particular bit of geography. He's not held in by a particular kind of priesthood either. He will go where he wants to go. Remember all the way back to chapter one where we had this incredible vision of a chariot on wheels that had lots of wheels so it can go in any direction. God goes where he wants to go. And then elsewhere in the chapter, not in the chapter, elsewhere in the book, We've seen Ezekiel talking about, uh, with explaining how God is saying that he 
will be a sanctuary wherever his people are rather than them needing to go to his sanctuary where he is so this this picture of the river which we could spend ages on um, expresses all of those things I'm going to bring this to a conclusion in just a second, but I want, the last thing I wanted to mention before I do that is that the, the chapter with the river in chapter 47 is not the last chapter of the book. The last chapter is chapter 48. And the very last verse, the very last words of that uh, prophecy say this. And the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. The chapter talks about where Jerusalem will be and how the allocation of land around it will work. It's, an, again, allegorical and designed to remind the people uh, who are God's people, both Israel and Judah, that they, having been united uh, by the Spirit, will be um, occupying the land again, or they will be where God has chosen for them to be, and he will be in the centre of them. And I've just completely lost my train of thought. Oh, yes. Uh, and that's the thing that becomes essential, the core of God's purpose, is that God is there. Not the architecture, not land distribution. Those things are all cleaned away in this book. But the city, which was previously called Jerusalem, now only has the name of the Lord is there. And that defines what God is wanting to give his people, his humanity. We go all the way back to Genesis and Leviticus to understand that more. OK, and we reach a conclusion here. A conclusion to a book that has been so exciting and such hard work, that has been so full of promise, but also full of such despair. A book that in many ways encapsulates the problem that has always grown around the covenant that God has with his people and which describes our need for Jesus as well as what Jesus brings us. It's a book by a prophet and as John Golden Gay says, prophets exist to disagree with their people, even I might add the religious ones, or possibly especially the religious ones. I think probably the religious people are the ones who most need God to uh, disagree with them. In Ezekiel, we see how people thought they had life and they thought they had it sorted. And Ezekiel came to say that the life they thought they had wasn't really there. And that the idols they were chasing weren't going to bring them life. And Ezekiel said that although they thought they had life, actually they had none. And then Ezekiel does something to flip it the other way around. So the people end up saying, we've been cut off, we've been left behind, we've been shut out and we have no future. And then Ezekiel steps in and disagrees with them again and says, no, you do. You do because this God who is loving and faithful is absolutely going to restore everything he intends for you. He is going to renew you and he is going to renew his presence with you. The future of the people of God, then, is about God's presence and is therefore about the Spirit. The Holy Spirit who occupies the life of anybody who wants God to be part of who they are.
as Jesus, through his death and resurrection, his death for sin and his resurrection for life to win, to triumph over death. As he goes about those things, he offers anyone the chance to have the power uh, and understanding of God living within them by the Spirit. It is another example of how God doesn't need us to go to his sanctuary, but actually provides himself as a sanctuary to us wherever we are. And there's another point that gets picked up, I think, alongside that. So if, this, if God is sanctuary rather than being in a sanctuary that we need to go to, then worship no longer needs the temple. This was a key theological theme for Ezekiel. Worship doesn't need the temple because God doesn't need the temple. In fact, a focus on temple and city of Jerusalem takes people's focus away from the God who is their king. And it's from this period of exile and the return from exile that we see the development of synagogue. So instead of temple being all and everything, we now get this smaller, more personal, more um, community based, intimate based gathering of people to worship together and to understand God together. The development of synagogue is a place for gathering and walking together in the light of who God is. That's an approach that Jesus saw when he arrived as a man he was involved in and which one can only assume by associating with himself, he championed it. He also went to the temple quite a fair bit, but I believe that he endorsed this community based gathering. Anyway, at the risk of running on uh, and we're nearly finished. Um, that, that I wanted to just go back in this conclusion to re-emphasising again the role of the Spirit. So Fillmore, who I've referred to before, I think quoted from, um, says, We should not be satisfied with crowded churches or busy meetings. Instead, the only thing that we should be pursuing is the presence and life of the Spirit in us and in our worshipping communities. Our church isn't really going to be effective as a representation of Jesus in the local area or as an expression of the mission of God unless we welcome and repeatedly welcome the presence of the Spirit in and among us. Our life can only come through the Spirit's presence. The Valley of Dry Bones reinforces that and the New Testament letters emphasise it too. Let's not forget that in the in the Acts of the Apostles, the, the book that is the story, the history of the early church, that, that that story begins with Jesus' departure, promise of the Holy Spirit, and then when the Spirit arrives, a whole new movement is born. What we think of as the early church starts at that point. And then, and of course I would do this, those of you who've been um, engaging with what I've been talking about over the last year or year and a half will not be at all surprised that there is this link with Leviticus. The beginning of Leviticus is about, um, the beginning of this starts with God saying when anyone approaches me. So there's an assumption that God can be approached by his people and then there's a whole recreation um, symbolically and ceremonially of Eden which is a reminder that God's purpose uh, in creation was to share his presence with us and that Sabbath particularly is created 
for that to happen. God in Ezekiel, specifically at that point where he, well, in chapter 16, where he's talking about how he nurtures Jerusalem, God says to Jerusalem, live. But I think actually that can be picked up and amplified right at the start of creation when humanity is first made. God says, live. And then to Jerusalem, he says, live. And then in the Valley of Dry Bones, he says, live. And when Jesus dies and is resurrected, he says, live. And the call, the welcome, the invitation to us is by the Holy Spirit to live in the presence of God with his blessing. As he said to his creation, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for walking with us as we've looked at this incredible story, this incredible book and prophecy. We ask that you would help us keep in our hearts some of what we've been learning in recent weeks. We pray that we would welcome the Holy Spirit into our lives and that we would live in all the ways that you call us to. Amen. As usual, we're asking three questions. And question one is this. In that chapter about the Valley of the Dry Bones, chapter 37, we have this moment when God says, um, to his people, I will bring you out of your graves. And there's no end of worship music as well about this idea of coming out of death and into life. So the question is this, what are the things that make you feel dead? What are the things that you want to be resurrected from? What are the pains and the hurts and the disappointments and despairs that make you feel like you've been cooped up in a grave? What do you want God to release you from? Okay, and on to question two. And this is a little bit of a cheat because it draws on something that I've not touched on so much uh, in the talk I've just done. And it's significant, I think, and, and I wanted some way of touching on it. So we're going to do that here. Ezekiel is not asked to rebuild the temple or to organise its rebuilding. It would seem that God is absolutely fine with being the sanctuary rather than needing one to be made. And so... I wondered whether we might ask ourselves what we're tempted to do, to build, to make, that God doesn't actually need us to do. So Jesus says that we are to make disciples and elsewhere he says that he will build his church. Perhaps the question to ask is, what are the things that you're tempted to build that God hasn't asked you to make? OK, so question three isn't really a question. It's more of an encouragement. I'd like you to invite the Holy Spirit to be in your life right now. It's not something I can do on your behalf. There are so many things in churches that have been outsourced to leadership teams or ministers, things that we expect the minister to do because he's the one who provides the leadership. In reality, I think, a big part of being a disciple of Jesus is exercising our own relationship with him and sharing what that's like with each other. So my encouragement to you is to invite the Holy Spirit to be in your life. That is something that we can do every day. And some of you 
may have experience of this and have stories to tell about what that's like. To be able to uh, share the presence and power that Jesus um, took with him into his ministry in your day-to-day -day life. But if you don't know about that and you want to get involved with it or you think maybe it's worth trying out, then maybe write it down somewhere that you're, this is the day when you're doing it and then go back to God later and say, um, this is what it was like. This is how I experienced having you in my life in that way. It really is very simple. It is just a case of approaching God. It, from, for me, it would mostly be done through prayer. So I would probably close my eyes uh, and say to God, I know that your Holy Spirit is real and I know that he is powerful and makes a big difference. And I want to invite him into my life. Would you give me your Holy Spirit in a new way today? Something like that. I might even pray to the Holy Spirit, which is OK to do because he's every bit as much God as father and son are. So I might close my eyes because I do feel more comfortable praying with eyes closed and, and say, Holy Spirit, would you come and, and be in me and, and help me to be the, the person that you know I can be? Something like that. But definitely to record uh, when you ask God for that or when you ask the Holy Spirit to come and be part of your life. And then to be able to reflect on it, even better if you can do that with somebody else so that you're able to appreciate and understand how the Holy Spirit is working in your life, which will be different for different people. Well, that's it from me. That's your three questions. And that is the prophecy of Ezekiel. Let me pray for us before I sign off. Father God, by your spirit, you do incredible things. Lord Jesus, you promised your spirit to us as we follow you. Spirit of God, you are available to us to be God's presence and power. Would you be in us? Would you remind us of the message of Ezekiel? Would you help us to remember that you keep your promises? Would you help us to remember to be faithful to one who loves us so much that he gave his life for us. Amen. Well, that's it for Ezekiel. Look out for our next series, which is coming up soon. Um, and do feel free to check back on some old ones. Um, I'm always excited to look back over Leviticus, and there's a series on that. There's also stuff about discipleship and on about being the church as well. Uh, and if you've got anything that you want to challenge me about or ask me about or things where you disagree with me or you want to say this is really awesome I'd love to hear from you my email address is mike at watchitbaptist.org.uk or you can leave a comment on this video take care god bless and I'll see you soon